Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Today, what I wanted to mention was uh, Adobe Cloud Editing. Yesterday, we were talking about Adobe Premiere and some of the interesting stuff that's related to that. But, uh, but one of the big missing holes right now is something available for the new world that is cloud computing. There's really no possible media editing workflow for a lot of these cloud computing uh, environments. Like, well, I guess probably primarily the Google Chromebook environment. There's no like, there's no Photoshop. There's no way you can really dig in and edit a lot of, um, you know, at least like a professional workflow of high level media assets like uh, full resolution files like photographs or and probably most specifically video editing so there's no like cloud-based video editing software that really truly like works in an effective way but i hear the rumor is that adobe's about to announce some kind of product that's going to be focused on these cloud computing devices that can be a video editing service uh, where you can put up the the media onto the cloud and then it'll be hosted there by more powerful computers that can crunch and render that that information out and render your cuts out, I guess, server side and show them to you client side. And that's supposed to be a better experience, a possible experience. I don't know, something like that. It's still experimental at this phase, but uh, it would be interesting to see some kind of cloud computing-based video editing program. So something to keep our eyes out on on the horizon. You can see more of my work at billynewmanphoto.com. You can check out some of my photo books on Amazon. I think you can look up uh, Billy Newman under the authors section there and see uh, some of the photo books on film, on the desert, on surrealism, on camping. Some cool stuff over there. I'm out on a camping trip right now and I'm in the back of my truck on the tailgate uh, at a campsite in the Fremont Winema National Forest in South Central Oregon. Pretty sure that's about where it would be. Maybe it's still Central Oregon. I think it's um, it's still in the, the mountain area before you drop down into the Great Basin. Uh, near the location that I was for the last podcast when I was uh, talking about hanging out near that cabin, uh, near a meadow. And uh, since then, I've, I've been driving... Uh, kind of around through these uh, forest service roads, uh, checking out different campsites that are laid out in some areas. Uh, a lot of area up here. I think um, I think when I was, I was looking at my watch and it says we're about 4,900 feet. I think I was about 5,200 feet near maybe the higher parts that I was at. But yeah, this is, this is pretty high up here. Um, I think I saw a little bit of snow on the ground in a spot a while back when I was driving a little shady spot that I hadn't get, uh, been... Uh, been warmed up, which is, I don't know, it's weird to see in August. Not much snow out here, though, you know, by any means. So um, I think I was up here in the springtime in a, a, you know, a different area, kind of further down and lower in elevation. And uh, I think it was early April. And I could get a ways up the mountain, but I think I got snowed out really quickly before before you really even break into, you know, the, the forest service roads that are up here. Even, even the more uh, well-traveled ones just weren't uh, maintained through the winter. Th these are gravel roads out here. It's like a cinder cone that's crushed up and then spread across the roads. Or uh, I think uh, further to the west, they're still using gravel. I think I crossed over from Klamath County now into Lake County. 
as uh, I've been making my way. I think uh, on the the map app that I've got, that Onyx off-road app that I've been using a lot out here, it's really been uh, uh, a good benefit to have uh, a road map of all of these uh, Forest Service roads and all the trails and uh, the terrain and stuff that I'm I'm looking around. But uh, but yeah, it really helps uh, kind of scan around and, and see what's around you and, and how to get through some places. But I mean, you, you'll have like just real tiny ATV trails. Troublingly, though, I think I mentioned they're not really totally differentiated with notes on uh, how bad each different road is. It's just a, a solid green line that says you can drive on it, and it might be a, a well-graded uh, gravel road that's wide like a like a highway, or it might be a really small and brushy, like overgrown power line road that kind of cuts along a property line. That's what I was on yesterday for about a half hour, and I was thinking, man, I probably would have taken that main way around if I had realized it would do this. That's the thing that, that gets you, too, because it'll be a good road for about three miles, you know, or long enough that you're like, ah, I don't really want to turn around. And then it'll kind of gradually creep in and creep in more slowly. As I, I suppose less and less people have gone out as far as that to keep the road uh, well-traveled and maintained. But, yeah, you get that that the ruts of the tires and then you get the center strip where you're getting like a bunch of seedlings of trees these evergreen trees that are growing up about two feet three feet or so and they haven't really been topped off or knocked over by other uh, trucks going through maybe there's i don't know higher clearance vehicles that go through most of the time but uh even in this truck it's uh i'm still just kind of scraping across the the bottom of uh these tiny little seedlings that are all over the place um so i don't know it's okay it's okay kind of floating around but i think i made it around like 70 miles or so from the last place that I was camping, and I'm now uh, up in the hills at an area out by uh, a big lake. Well, I think it's a reservoir, and I think this area, there's like kind of a natural depression. It's only, I don't know, 20, 25 feet lower, but I think what they've done is they've dammed up an area down from here, and then I've created a reservoir up here, I think, to supply water to the town and farmland that's down lower in elevation from here um, which is kind of cool it's interesting how it's uh, sort of laid out like this up here but I've been walking around up here for a little bit and I think I'm the only person up here in this area um, I think there's a, a like a forest service campground that's a little ways over it's pretty undeveloped too there's a I think there's like I don't, I don't think there's running water there but I think there's a boat ramp or something. That's about it. And there's signs that give you information. Really out here, though, it's just it's just undeveloped camping. Um, but there's a picnic table at the spot I'm at. Pretty big rock pile fireplace with a fire grate over it. Uh, it looks like it was a hunting camp up here. I see uh, I see a couple uh, log poles that are stretched across a tree at probably 12 feet and 8 feet or so. Uh, I think that's what they use when, uh, like in the fall when they start doing their uh, when hunting season comes into effect, and I think this area gets a little more flooded out with uh, with people that have drawn tags to go mule deer hunting, um, and I think if they if they fill their tag, then they'll use these poles to I guess like prep the meat as it uh, as they get it back into camp. But uh, it's a cool little camp. It's a big area too. It's it's a, there's a swing too. There's like a rope swing with a wood board at the bottom that you sit on. And you can swing around a a pine tree up here. A lot of pine trees. What is it? Lodgepole pine? Is that what it's called? I think that's what I saw on a sign that said this is an experimental forest, and they're you know they're testing it, seeing the regrowth of uh, a lodgepole pine. I think I see what they're talking about. They're just real straight, real thin, not a lot of curvatures and stuff. So I figure like what they do is, or like a lot of the 
the, I don't know, log houses or, you know, poles that we see are, are from trees like this. Pretty exciting. Wow. Uh, but uh, I've been walking around out here. Uh, still a good bit of trees in this area, but uh, a little bit further out from me, like I was saying, is that lake bed. But it's it's really dry right now. There's kind of like a creek flowing through part of the center of it. I'm sure you probably fill it up in the winter time. I got to remember it's August, too. And if I remember right, it wasn't a heavy rain year. Is that true? It seemed really rainy this winter, but if I remember them talking about the watershed, they were still talking about how it's sort of a drought year again. Take a sip of my cold coffee that I made up earlier. I got my AeroPress out with me, and I picked up a, another Jetboil. I've had one years ago. Jetboils are like one of the best uh, camping inventions that have been around for a while. If you don't have a good uh, portable stove and you're going out a lot, it's, it really makes things a lot easier and a lot more comfortable. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I've, I've gone uh, without making a fire anytime this year. And in the summertime out here, I keep seeing signs, as I've kind of learned in the past too, that uh, during fire season, there's there's really like no no good way, uh, or at least no legal way to have an open fire pit, you know, like a rock pit with some logs in it, I think is uh, frowned upon up here. I think they've had a lot of forest fires and stuff up here. Um from from stuff like that but uh but yeah i've uh i've really kind of tried to avoid making campfires but for circumstances where i feel like i'd really need it in the winter time i have more fun with that sort of stuff but what i've noticed the most with uh with camping for multiple days and setting up campfires is that is that you really get sooty and you get dirty a lot faster you, you know your your clothes are kind of impregnated with the smell of uh like a wet smoke and stuff and uh and i don't i've I've not really appreciated the way I feel with that. So, uh, so yeah, I've kind of found that um, by doing just a couple lighter things and also by following the fire regulation rules, um, I can kind of uh, stay a little bit more comfortable while I'm out camping and stuff. So I'm not really in the backcountry. I'm not doing like a big, um, a big expedition hike backpacking deep into the wilderness or anything. I've got my truck here. I've got a cooler. I've got a stove and all that stuff. But, uh, but even when I'm out, camping or backpacking and stuff the jet boil is just like it's a pound or less or something I don't know, it's great it's just uh, an easy thing to carry and and uh and travel around with um so yeah i lit it up this morning made my coffee i got my aeropress with me which i think is probably my preferred camping coffee making method if you haven't had an aeropress um it's probably one of the the easier and well i don't know it's been it's been fine to make a single cup of coffee now if you got like four people and you want to have coffee at the same time might not be a great solution it's pretty tough you can kind of do one cup of coffee at a time for me out here it works great you can throw in a scoop it's kind of like plastic i think it's made by aerobe you know the, you know when you were in, in elementary school and you play frisbee it was like an aerobe frisbee they make like frisbees i think they're like a plastics company and they try and find different uses for these plastics that they're creating so I guess it's some high-temperature plastic, and it's a coffee maker. Wow. So you get these little filters you throw them in. You can probably look it up online and figure out what an AeroPress is. But yeah, filled up my coffee and stuff and uh, made my cup and my camping cup and threw some half and half in there that I had in the cooler, and it's already it's already cold, so it's okay. But uh, other camping uh, tools that I found super useful was, uh, like I was saying, I don't really have a heater or I don't have a fireplace that I'm using or, you know, like a, a fire ring or I'm not bringing wood with me, uh, through this time of year. But what I did pick up is, uh, is just like a portable propane heater. I've seen these used by a couple other people before, but it's sort of the size of a briefcase or so. And it's, it takes one of those, uh, those portable green propane pans that you can pick up for, 
three or four bucks at a at a store, and you throw that in there, you light the pilot light, and then it's got this uh, like ceramic pad that I don't know throws off heat. Uh, so it's great to have, and that's really like my fireplace replacement, as exciting as that sounds. But it's pretty safe, working really well, been really uh, stable and, and easy to use. But yeah, I got my tailgate down, and I've got that um, that heater going. And at night, it's a uh, it's about as good as a fire, you know. And you don't have any of the uh, the exhaust or the smoke and stuff coming off of it. So uh, it's a nice, clean heat source and stuff. And it's fun too if you want to move. You're like, oh, you know, I'm, I, I like my camp, but let's walk out over here. Like what I did last night is a uh, I shut the heater off while I was after I made dinner and I was sitting at my truck and then I walked out probably about a hundred yards into that open area as you're getting near the edge of the the lake bed and then I sat down over there and then kicked the heater on again. Boom, I'm set up and hanging out and warm and uh, yeah, it it gets cold up here at night. Really, I think the last last couple of days have been kind of chilly. Well, at least like uh, yesterday was pretty cold for I don't know a day in August. Uh, you think it'd be you think it'd be a hot one, but, uh, but yeah, it was pretty, pretty cool yesterday. I think it was probably like 73 degrees as a high. It was really comfortable or I appreciated that as opposed to the heat. Like I was, I was knocked out by the heat. I think it was like around a hundred, uh, when I was out in the John Day area a few weeks back and man, yeah, I was just wiped out by that. But, uh, it, you know, it was, I don't know, it was a hundred degrees. I'm driving around my truck with the windows down. I don't have AC in this thing. And I just, uh, like <laughs> I have this, my mask, right. It's a gator. You know, everybody's got a mask nowadays. So I've got one of these gators and I would just constantly be like dunking that in ice water and then like using that to cool off. But man, uh, yeah. Throwing that around your neck when it's covered in ice water is a great way to cool off. I think that was, you know, like some, I don't know, some, uh, some like gimmicky product back in the early 2000s was something like that where you'd uh, you'd fill up like some something wrap it around your neck and it had ice cubes and water in it you go on a walk and stay cool in the summer another sip of cold coffee but yeah having this heater out here has been great uh going out uh to anywhere you want setting up a chair setting up a heater it's a pretty comfortable way to, to do some stuff and it works Works well for doing some photo stuff too, because you can just kind of take off from where you're at, take your camera bag, take this little heater, and then uh, set up your tripod, sit down, set up your camera stuff, get your shots ready for like that evening time, and you can sit there pretty comfortably and just uh, you know stay warm and stay pretty comfortable. And um, uh, I wouldn't really take it too far out, you know, if I was uh, if I was traveling uh, pretty far. But if it's uh, if it's just kind of like a short short little jaunt down to a spot where I'm fishing or uh, where I'm uh, gonna be taking some photos it seems like it's been working pretty good for that sort of stuff but um but yeah kind of fun having a, a couple of things around i brought uh brought a few other things but i don't know i'll probably get into the other camp stuff later um it's been pretty smooth though camping out here and uh, traveling around i've been trying to do uh, some more rock hounding stuff uh, i was learning about uh, some of the privileges that you have on public lands to do rock hounding it's cool you can look this up yourselves too but uh, but i think there's uh uh like rock hounding it's like i don't know the, the hobby of going around and collecting interesting rocks that you find uh you know out while you're traveling around and so uh legally you still get to pick those things up from public land areas unless there's some specific restriction in that area but uh but yeah, you can go around and do rock counting all you want. So I think it's it's most common stones that you can you can just pick up uh, with no, or you know it's just your right on public land to pick up uh, the the rocks that you come past. So it, it's been kind of cool going around and picking up 
um, up here. I've been seeing a bunch of um, obsidian in raw form and stuff, which is pretty cool. Uh, coming across some jasper, some agate, some quartz, some petrified wood. That's been cool. I think last week I found a chunk of petrified wood when I was walking around, and I thought, hey, nice, cool. I like this. And uh, there's some areas in Oregon where there's more of that than uh, than others. I think that it was part of part of the land development of, of how, I guess, how much wood would have been trapped quickly under mud. Is that what it is? I don't know. There's some, there's some like, specific process of how petrified wood gets created from uh, really old trees and, you know, like, uh, how that, that uh, mineral change happens. I was learning about agate, too. Agate's from wood also. I didn't really understand this. But I think agate's from when uh, when a piece of wood is buried in lava from a volcanic flow. Someone that knows about rocks really would probably be able to tell me more quickly. But uh, I think from something I was understanding recently, if you don't listen to it, check out the Meat Eater podcast. There's a bunch of really good stuff on there. Uh, I think it's hosted by Steve Ranella. And uh, they normally have like uh, some really good guests on to talk about. Uh, most of the time it's through the focus through the lens of uh, like hunting trips and stuff. But really, I've learned so much about uh, like outdoors, outdoor management, uh, and then, you know, including stuff like this, like rock hounding and geology and uh, all sorts of like uh, intersectional uh, ideas that are about the uh, outdoors and outdoorsmanship. So really appreciated uh, kind of some of the things I've learned from that. But one of the things I learned from that from an episode, I think maybe back in early May, was about uh, some rock hounding stuff that they were doing where they were going out looking for agate. And I think they were out in the Yellowstone Valley where they were looking for agate. One of the things that they explained is from from one of the the old uh, Yellowstone eruptions, uh, there was a flow of magma that covered a forest or, you know, a lot of trees. And then what would happen is that once that wood was encased in magma, the wood, the carbon wood would burn away and then it would leave a pocket where that wood had been. And then over a long amount of time, water, groundwater would seep into that pocket and then evaporate out. But as it would seep in, it would bring a certain set of minerals in it. And then as that mineral deposit would build, it would build an agate. And that's how you get these agate stones. I have this one at home that's, that's it looks like a... It looks like an onion almost, or, or like if you've ever seen the cross section of a really big piece of hail. It's sort of like that, where it's got all these different layers to it that have been created um, at different times, at different stages as it developed. But it was pretty cool, uh, yeah, uh, going around and trying and find some agate and uh, really cool stuff, uh, or like really cool colors, really cool, uh, like, sh I don't know, just the, the, the clarity of some of them is, is awesome. It's really cool. Um, I think a little further out from here, you can start uh, finding opal, which is cool. I don't think I've really found a lot of opal. I've heard a lot about that uh, in the. I think I think it's more common and more popular, like out in Nevada. I think like northwestern Nevada is pretty common for uh, finding opal or uh, deposits of opal rocks in that area, and and that's sort of similar to an agate, at least in the look of, of that kind of clear, uh, crystally. Uh, look of a rock, which uh, is, I don't know, it's always fun to find. Um, but I've been traveling around up here, and it's kind of high country up here. But uh, I've been traveling around and, yeah, trying to do some rock counting stuff, trying to pick up some different things. And you really can find a, a lot if you're keeping your eyes to the ground and uh, picking up 
pieces and chips and chunks of, uh, of different rocks and stuff. And then you kind of collect through them and see what you got and what you want to keep and stuff. But as I was understanding the rules of rock counting, you can get into, I think it's 25 pounds of rock a day from BLM land across Oregon. And I believe it's 10 pounds of rock per day from national forest land. Really, that's a lot of rock. Also, in addition to that, you can pick up one 25 pound or more specific specimen from i think each location so like if you find like one big rock that's i don't know uh, 50 pounds or 30 pounds or something like that you can you can take that rock as well and not uh, be in violation of your rock hounding picking limits pretty pretty fun but uh it's cool yeah you can go around and pick up a lot of stuff and then i think it's with a maximum of 250 pounds collected from each uh each property management location uh through a year so you can pick up 250 pounds of rocks uh, over the course of a year. And I think, well, uh, yeah, yeah, you can't do that in a day, I suppose. Some of the information sort of um, sort of st- states both things. So <laughs> I'm not really sure which one it is. But uh, from what I have understood from, from looking at the uh, National Forest Service website, uh, I think there's some information about rock hounding in Oregon and, uh, and some of the areas that I was going to. But yeah, it was uh, 25 pounds a day on BLM, 10 pounds a day on national forest land. And, uh, and yeah, that's cool. That's a lot. You can also go around and pick up firewood, which I didn't really know about. Um, you, you need like a, 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 a permit in some circumstances if you're trying to collect it commercially. But if you're collecting it for private personal use, even just like home use, uh, there's a lot of wood that you can uh, pick up from managed public lands. Some of them, I think, are there's like some specific areas where they want you to be doing that, and some specific areas where they don't want you to be doing that. I think if it's, um, well, I'm not sure. Not all downed wood, but I think if if a if it's down and it's collectible, I think you can collect that uh, in in a lot of areas. Um, so yeah, I went through like in the springtime, I went through an area of BLM land and I filled up my truck with uh, with a bunch of. Uh, logs that have been taken down and I think stacked up in an area and yeah I just loaded up my truck and I have firewood for a while you can get like a, a I think you can get it's 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 a limit similar to the rock counting stuff where you can get like a couple cords of wood a year and uh, collect that for personal home use I think if you're trying to sell firewood then you have to go through the BLM or the Forest Service to get a permit for the area where you're going to be doing wood cutting I've only just picked up downed wood that you would pick up kind of like for a campfire or something like, you know, if you're going around trying to pick up firewood for a camp, um, it's kind of a similar process to that. I'm not really like uh, cutting down fresh trees and aging them, but, uh, but there's, there's a qualification for that too. You can go around and uh, if it's a, a specifically designated area for that kind of a thing, uh, you can go around and, and actually, you know, use a tool and cut down a tree and process it and take it home and uh, cover up your stump or something like that, and, you know, naturalize the stump that you cut. But, uh, but yeah, there's, there's a, a lot of stuff you can do out on public land I wasn't really quite, quite aware of in, in, uh, in the, every way. But, uh, but, yeah, it's been cool being out here, doing some rock counting stuff, trying to find uh, some, some cool pieces. Really, a lot of obsidian is what I've been finding, which has been fun. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of, like, volcanic rock stuff out here. And some of them are cool, you know, but they're not, they're not um, like... Uh, I don't know, they're not like a gem or anything. It's just like, you know, a basalt stone from a volcano. Uh, but it's cool. Yeah, these uh, rock hunting stuff has been pretty good. 
You can check out more information at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. You can go to BillyNewmanPhoto.com forward slash support if you want to help me out and participate in the value for value model that uh, we're running this podcast with. If uh, you receive some value out of some of the stuff that I was talking about, you're welcome to uh, help me out and send some value my way through the portal at BillyNewmanPhoto.com forward slash support. You can also find more information there about uh, Patreon and the way that I use it. If you're interested or, or feel more comfortable using Patreon, that's Patreon.com forward slash BillyNewmanPhoto. Uh, so I worked with those film bodies for a while. Then I uh, I tried to switch out and I bought uh, an, a Sony A7R, which was really interesting. I was I was really interested in what Sony was doing with the mirrorless systems that they're creating. Those uh, the interchangeable lens cameras that are out. Uh, so I, I used a, I used a Sony camera at work to do a bunch of the production photography that I was doing. And then on top of that, I bought uh, the the sony a7r to work with at home and work with on all the landscape stuff and that was great it was uh, you know it's a 36 megapixel camera which is you know mind-blowing and astonishing when you think in comparison to the 4.2 megapixels i was working with with the nikon d2h so it was awesome to kind of get that expansion you know when working with digital systems um and i love doing that uh, but there's some limitations to the A7R line, like the original A7R. I liked that camera, and I, I probably shoot with something like that again. It kind of reminded me more of like the Leica model of camera, or it seemed more like a rangefinder kind of camera. The way that it was built, the, the kind of small structure of it, and the way that it was designed, it seemed like uh, like it wasn't quite a full. DSLR replacement at the time and I think that's not what they were really aiming for by the design of it and you know by the, the options and by the, the mechanisms of the camera that, and the way that it worked it seemed like it was kind of supposed to sort of be a, a camera sort of to the side of your professional camera if you were if you're doing professional uh, work like it, it was really difficult we shot a couple weddings with it made some beautiful photographs with it, had some great lenses that I worked with, but there was a lot of things that I was really lacking on. I think I talked about that in earlier episodes of this podcast too, where there would, there would just be problems with the autofocus where it was great for landscape stuff, really slow, uh, you know, stuff where you'd have your camera on your tripod and you, you know, spend some time trying to set the shutter, uh, trying to set up the focal length of the lens and having time to focus the image in a way that we you know worked out all right all of those features really worked out really well but if you wanted to go through and in a pretty short amount of time hammer out a couple hundred frames that were all that you know you'd all want to be in focus or you'd all want to be uh, you know pretty functional raw images it, it just had a harder time getting that sort of stuff done and the way that the buttons were laid out and the way that the menu was laid out you didn't really have the ability to to kind of reach for and grab at those sort of professional and necessary photography feature as quickly as, as quickly as you would want to. So I learned a lot by working with it. It's great to use. I'd probably want a camera like that again, and especially the, the A7R2 or the A7 II and the A7S and now the A7R3, all of those, and the A9, gosh, all of those newer Sony line mirrorless cameras have a lot of interesting features. And they, they've also, I think, tried to directly target some of those limitations that the first A7, A7R line had with them. So I think uh, now there's the, uh, way more dynamic video features, way more dynamic auto-focusing systems in it that are, I think, quite a bit better. But I still hear there's some seek problems. That's what I had, is that, you know, you'd go to focus the image, and then the autofocus point would just seek forever. It wouldn't grab onto the thing that you needed it to. And uh, and then when you take the photograph, you'd have a blackout, because like, it's, it's a digital representation of the image in the viewfinder instead of a through-the-lens, single-lens reflex-style 
uh, view of it, you would lose sight of the photograph that you were taking. And then if you were trying to hammer uh, a few frames all at once, it would just it would just stay black that whole time, you know, because it was about a second to process. And then you would try and take maybe two or three frames a second. And so you just wouldn't see anything the whole time that you were trying to get the image. And that's where I was noticing that uh, that, that kind of digital model wasn't really what I wanted at the time. Now in the A9, I think there's like a whole whole feature system that sort of eliminates that whole problem and now there's just like a blinking band that kind of pops in yellow so that you know that you're taking a frame right then but it never really loses or goes blackout uh, but i was noticing that you know with that i was like oh well i really liked the stuff that i was doing with film you know where it was just way more analog and where you could just kind of look right at what you were taking and you could really focus in on the expression and and the moment that you're capturing in the photograph and that way you could be more selective about the way that you were taking the photograph so i wanted to kind of move back toward the dslr system anyway and i wanted uh sort of a, a i guess like a more professional feature set where it was weather sealed or where it was you know set up where you could hammer out a lot of frames on it for work uh, you know, all the time. And you would just know that it would work all the time. Also, also in addition, the Sony cameras had sort of some issues with the, the battery system that they used on those first couple models. It was pretty small, or it, it was, and, and the camera was kind of power intensive because everything was always running a screen, either on the back of the screen for the viewfinder or, or pardon me, for the screen or for the the viewfinder itself that you look through with your eye that was always like a, a screen that was running and so it would run through your battery pretty quickly and it was kind of an anemic battery system i think there's a lot of reviews that sort of mention that same problem with it all the time that it was just sort of an issue that people would run into especially people that were trying to work a professional job you know if you, if you wanted to work with a camera for a whole day you would just run into a lot of problems and you'd have to have a lot of batteries to kind of run through it um, and so i liked it for a lot of stuff that I did, it worked really well, but but overall, it wasn't really a camera system that I uh, was able to use for for some of the jobs that I was being asked to do, and so that was kind of why. Well, okay, if I need to make all this, or you know, if I'm going to try and make some money doing photography, then I'm going to have to switch over to something that I can kind of use more as a tool all the time. Thanks a lot for checking out this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Hope you guys check out some stuff on BillyNewmanPhoto.com. A few new things up there. Some stuff on the homepage. Some good links to other other outbound sources. Some some links to books. Some links to some podcasts. Links to some blog posts. All pretty cool. But yeah, check it out at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the podcast. Talk to you next time.